Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Thea Linarduzzi, Commissioning Editor at the TLS, and what you're about to listen to is a special episode of our podcast. It's part of a mini-series of discussions and debates recorded last month at our London Lit Fest, a day of literary exploration and discovery. Our normal weekly show will return on January the 5th, once the editor Stig Abel and I have emerged from a seasonal mince pie and port-induced stupor. Perhaps I'm just speaking for myself there. If you don't already know our podcast, have a listen. You'll find all previous episodes on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our books of the year from a few weeks ago might be of particular interest for this reflective time of year. Subscribe. It's free. In the meantime, though, here's something to tide you over. In this episode, the historians Simon Bradley and Rosemary Ashton and the architect Paul Williams discuss the literary and architectural heritage of King's Cross, London, an area which has seen tremendous upheaval in the past century. Hello and welcome to the first talk of this year's uh, London Lit Weekend, which is sponsored and curated by the TLS. Uh, my name is Mika ross Southall, I'm Commissioning Editor at the TLS, and I'll be chairing the discussion this morning. We're sitting in an area, King's Cross and Bloomsbury, that's steeped in a rich architectural and literary heritage, perhaps more so than any other area in London. It's also a place that's undergone immense change over the past centuries. How and why has this area changed? What's the area like now? And what do we think it will be like in the future? Joining me to discuss this is Rosemary Ashton, Emeritus Quain Professor of English Literature and Language at UCL, whose most recent book, Victorian Bloomsbury, was published in 2012. We also have the architectural historian, Simon Bradley, who is the joint editor of the Pevsner Architectural Guides, and the author of Subpancras Station, published in 2007, and The Railways, which appeared last year. And finally, at the end, we are joined by Paul Williams, who is the co-founder of the architectural practice Stanton Williams, which has won over 100 awards for projects ranging from museums, galleries, exhibition spaces, to urban design and master planning. Stanton Williams renovated the square in front of King's Cross Station, and he designed the new campus for the London Art and Design College, Central St. Martins, which was the first building to materialise on the new redevelopment site at King's Cross. We'll talk among ourselves for about 40 minutes, and then we'll open it up to you, the audience, to ask any questions. And please just remember that this is being recorded, so we'll have a mic that will roam around. So, let's start then with looking back to what the area was like during the Victorian period when the most significant changes were taking place and the streets were being trodden by the likes of Charles Dickens, William Thackeray. Rosemary, can you tell us a bit about what the area was like during the 19th century and how it was changing? Yes, indeed I can. Um, you have to remember, I'm sure you all know, that the 19th century was a tremendous period for the explosion of London's population and, of course, also uh, of building. And if you, I'm, I'm more an expert on Bloomsbury than I am on this, this the, the northern side of, of, of Euston Road. Um, but if you look back to 1800, uh, the fact in this area was that north of Great Russell Street, where the old British Museum was in Montague House, there was nothing but fields right up to Hampstead and Highgate. Uh, on the whole. I mean, there were bits and pieces, of course, but not very much. And it was really in 1800 that the Duke of Bedford, who uh, owned, and still the, the current Duke of Bedford still does, the largest parcel of land in Bloomsbury, uh, who decided 
to develop his land, his Bloomsbury land, uh, and handed over the land to speculative builders, James Burton and then Thomas Cubitt, who between them from 1800 to about 1850 built all the rather gracious, uh, respectable squares and streets uh, in the northern part of Bloomsbury, or everything, as I say, north of Great Russell Street. King's Cross um, is and was in the very northeast corner of Bloomsbury. If you, Bloomsbury, there are arguments about this, but believe me, I know the, the true answer to this question. <laughs> what are the borders of Bloomsbury? The northern border <coughs> is the Euston Road. So we, of course, are north of that. Um, but everything south of the Euston Road is Bloomsbury. The eastern border is Gray's Inn Road. Some people will tell you it's Southampton Row, but that's because they may not consciously do so, but they mistake the Duke of Bedford's part of Bloomsbury, so prominent as it is, for the whole of Bloomsbury. So Gray's Inn Road is your eastern boundary, just across from here, of course, just straight down from here. Holborn and New Oxford Street are the southern boundary, and Tottenham Court Road is the western boundary. And roughly speaking, everything between Tottenham Court Road and... Uh, Southampton Row is Duke of Bedford land, so Gordon Square, Russell Square, Bedford Square, uh, Tavistock Square, and so on. And to the east of that, from uh, Southampton Road towards Gray's Inn Road, there are a number of estates, the largest of which was the Foundling Hospital estate, where Mecklenburg Square and Brunswick Square and so on were built. So you've got a picture of a huge amount of building going on uh, from 1800 to 1850. And who was moving into these rather nice squares with the gardens in the middle and rather fine housing on the whole and the smaller streets by the side? Well, the people that were moving in were attended to be intellectuals and literary people. Why? Partly because Bloomsbury was at that time not fashionable, it still isn't I suppose, but it was middle of the road really, middle, middle class, uh, respectable, but not aristocratic. The people who moved into the largest houses tended to be judges and senior lawyers uh, for whom the inns of court were quite handy. So it was better for them than living in the more uh, aristocratic, fashionable squares like Cavendish Square, uh, Berkeley Square and so on to the west. From the time that um, University College London opened on Gower Street in the late 1820s, um, uh, naturally enough, professors and teachers and students moved in. Uh, and the area, Bloomsbury, became an area for education, innovation. The first kindergarten in Britain was opened on Tavistock Place. The Working Men's College was opened in Queen Square. Great Ormond Street Hospital in Queen Square. All this is happening in the Victorian period in, um, in Bloomsbury. But our corner, King's Cross, um, was actually a tricky corner because it was the northeast, it was kind of far flung from the so called centre of London at the time, Oxford Street, let's say, um, far from the um, political and administrative centre, Whitehall and Westminster, uh, and right on the boundary and on the edges of the area. To the east, uh, it was a bit slummy, as you might imagine. And right in this north corner, uh, northeastern corner of uh, Bloomsbury, uh, there were problems with prostitution and so on. And Simon will talk later about the effect of the coming of the railways along the, Euston, the stations along the Euston Road had perhaps on, on that, among other things. Um, King's Cross, the name King's Cross, uh, was uh, in, invented for this spot in 1830 because that was the year in which George IV died, and some people, he was not popular, of course, but there were people who thought there should be a memorial to him, so a memorial was stuck up in this, top, in this corner, in the top corner of Bloomsbury, um, and the, what, was, what was previously called Battlebridge was then uh, changed to King's Cross. Why, why was it called Battlebridge? Just the Battlebridge estate, it was just, I mean, I don't know if it's a particular battle, somebody else might know about that. It's, it's not a battle it's at all. No, it's a, no. it's a, people want it to be uh, the place where Bodicea was defeated, and oh. there's a ludicrous legend that Bodicea is buried beneath Platform 7 at King's Cross. Oh. Um, but no, it's a corruption of an older, an older word, borough or something like that. I, I'm not yes. sure it's ever quite been pinned down exactly, but it's, the, it's not about battle. That, that's no, a, no. that's a, a distortion of an older term. Yes. <coughs> I noticed, actually, I was walking along the Regent's Canal this morning and I noticed that uh, 
the name still exists, we overlook, if we, if we could see it, um, Battle Bridge Basin of the Regent's Canal just here. Um, so King's Cross, and, and the, the building was taking place, I mean, all the building tended to, to take place from Great Russell Street north, northwards, and so we're in the far corner um, here, and um, I'm afraid uh, <laughs> on the Grays Inn Road there was a horse bazaar, in the 1820s, and there were various people who came and tried to start businesses and so on. Um, and in the in the northwest northeast corner of Bloomsbury, uh, where Argyle Square is now, for example, uh, some people tried to start in the 1820s, uh, late 1820s, a, a Panarmion, it was called, which was a great theatre complex, and there was supposed to be it was connected with a horse bazaar. There would be all kinds of entertainments, and Signor Lanza, um, an Italian um, singer and, and concert producer, uh, wanted to do concerts and so on, but it didn't take off. Basically, uh, Bloomsbury generally was thought to be a little bit out of the way, and certainly this part of Bloomsbury, uh, just south of us here, uh, was was very much out of the way. Also, being on a boundary, it was difficult to manage, um, and so, for example. Um, landlords find it difficult to stop uh, subletting and trades from going on in the in the area. And I'll just say one more one more thing about this, which is that you will notice uh, that the western part of Bloomsbury, the, one, the west of um, Southampton Row, the Duke of Bedford's land, is still is rather sort of smarter um, and more elegant. Uh, than the eastern part, and that's because the Dukes of Bedford, right from the beginning, uh, set out very, very stringent leases. There were to be no trades, no trades at all in the area, no brass plaques. University College, which was built not on uh, Bedford land, uh, the Duke of Bedford wouldn't have allowed uh, uh, even a, a university to be um, built on its land, um, on his land. But but the university opened a school. Um, in, a, in a house on Gower Street, which was in Bedford land. And if you go to the uh, Bedford Estate Archives in Woburn Abbey, Abbey you find um, some increasingly irate letters from the Duke of Bedford's estate manager to the solicitors for University College saying, would you please take down that brass plaque on the door of your school? We don't, even a, a respectable school wasn't allowed to advertise its wares. And you'll notice that there are no shops or pubs on the squares in particular, and only on some of the surrounding streets. So, uh, but to the east, Foundling Estate and other smaller estates weren't able or didn't, didn't, didn't want to, um, uh, or, or couldn't really, uh, be quite so fussy about who lived there and what they did. And so there was a certain amount of slumminess coming in towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, only a little, but it tended to be up in this corner near here, really. So, so we've heard about the kind of cultural changes happening in the era during the 19th century, but what about the infrastructure? Um, what about the coming of the railways? What impact did that have on the area and, and on the people in the area? Uh, well, phys physical change, there's not that much south of that crucial line along the Eastern Road. Um, Bloomsbury carries on being Bloomsbury. Uh, north of there, well, London hasn't stopped developing. There's quite a lot of housing that's gone up, of, of some of it good, some of it not so good, but also messy and untidy stuff um, and, and or institutions uh, who wouldn't necessarily want us a neighbour. On, on the site of King's Cross Station was a smallpox and fever hospital, for example, um, so uh, that area is sort of more up for grabs than the big aristocratic estates to the south. And uh, when the railways are coming, flexing their muscles and starting to turn into a national network, then, um, of course, they want lines to London or they want to build out from London, however you look at it. Um, one crucial intervention is the uh, uh, ruling by Parliament in the 1840s uh, when it looks at all the railway mania at the time, when the railway speculation, railway proposals, uh, without any sort of national kind of steering uh, or overall plan, are at their peak, and sees all sorts of really kind of mad plans to build railways right through the middle of London, you know, smack down through the middle of London onto the Thames or something like that, and thinks, well, what if this actually happens? What if someone does enact this? And so they, they uh, uh, drew a line, and that line was along the Eastern Road and says, actually, railways have got to stop here. Um, and uh, that pretty well holds. So um, immediately after that, the railways... Um, and, and there's already a prototype for that at Euston, which, which precedes that. It's the first of those London termini along the, along the Euston Road. Um, 
But other things are in play as well, and one of those is the canal, the Regent's Canal, which goes around north of the, the Euston Road. Uh, it links the Grand Union Canal, which goes up to the Midlands, uh, with the docks, and that's the canal, you know, the, probably the canal that Londoners are, are most familiar with today. That's the canal which runs past this building and which you'll have crossed over, and you can see you know, pretty well from, from, from the, uh, uh, both at the back, where there's the canal basin, and from the front door here. Um, and uh, that's important, you know, it's carrying a lot, of, a lot of freight and a lot of traffic. So uh, when the railways come in, it starts with the Great Northern uh, Railway, which um, a, a new line, rival line to the Eastern Line, um, and that's the line that comes out of King's Cross, and that's they, they are able to buy out the fever hospital and, and build on the site there. Um, and they come in under the canal. Uh, they, they have tunnels, so when you travel from King's Cross now, you're going almost immediately into a sequence of tunnels, uh, and the line has to dip down. Um, and also it interconnects with the canal. It builds a great big grain warehouse there. Um, we'll hear about that. Um, so you can transfer your freight from railways to canals, and that's important too, as well as just carrying stuff out from the, the railways into, the, into London by, by road. Um, then another rival company comes along, and that's the Midland Railway, and that's the, the St Pancras station. Uh, that, the date of that is, well, King's Cross opens in 1852, um, St Pancras opens in 1868. So there's a, a fair gap between them. Um, and the Midland has... Uh, the Midland Railway, looking at the, how, how the Great Northern Railway did it at King's Cross, uh, does it differently. Um, it comes in over the canal, and so you end up with a station which is raised up. And that's easier to work in operational terms. Uh, the line can, doesn't have to dip down and go through tunnels, which are difficult for steam locomotives. Gradients are difficult for steam locomotives. So it has a nice level line in, um, but it does sit up above the street level. Uh, there are pros and cons for that, but it, it architecturally gets something much more imposing, and that's even before the question of what sort of architecture you, you, you put around that platform with the platform railway platforms on uh, comes into play. Do you know why there were I mean, two railway stations, including Euston, three railway stations, all built within such close proximity? You're coming in from the north, you know, you've mm. got to go somewhere. Um, keep going and you get to Maribyrn. Uh, keep going further and go around the corner of it and get to Paddington. So it's it's partly the the plurality of different railway lines, competing railway lines, um, and that's to say nothing of going uh, below ground because also we've got the underground railways coming along and uh, that follows the Euston Road because the way those first generation of underground railways, which are the first in the world, they're not just early generally, um, the, the the pioneers of underground railways. Um, worked by what's called cut and cover. You, you dig a very big trench, you put your railway in there and you build over the top. Um, now to do that through the streets of London, of course you've got to buy up and demolish and possibly rebuild, possibly not, everything along the way. It happens here and there. But if you can follow a road, um, well it's disruptive, but at least you're not having to buy up people's property in the same way. So uh, the decision to make that new road, the Eastern Road, and it's, well, it changes its name as it goes along, um, effectively determines the line of the first underground railway, the Metropolitan Railway, and that then links up through extremely tortuous and complicated routes underground, snaking this way and that, with both the lines from King's Cross and the lines from, uh, from St Pancras. So, uh, yeah, even, even, it, even the bare outlines of this story is very complicated. Mm. <laughs> so, Paul, for the new Central St Martins campus, you brought together all the disparate art faculties that were originally spread across London into one single building. And how did this history of the area and the existing buildings that you had to work with influence your design? If we just go back to two, 2002, um, Central St. Martins, which was a, an amalgam of St. Martins, uh, which was the 1850s, I think, that started, and then Central, uh, which started in the 1890s, wasn't it? Um, they actually joined forces in uh, the uh, 1989, I think, together. So you had two DNA two DNAs actually working together. But they were spread over 11 buildings around London. And in 2002, we won a competition, Stanton Williams, to develop their Holborn site, which is the, it's Kingsway, Southampton Row, Red Lion Square. 
And the idea was they would actually bring together a number of their different disciplines within this one building. Anyway, um, in 2003, one of the governors happened to go and listen to a talk by Roger Madeline from Argent, the developers who have actually developed the site over the road. And um, uh, this governor actually noticed the Granary Building. And he went and asked Roger what's, what actually is planned there. And this really comes back to um, when we talk about master planning and about um, the interesting thing. Uh, good, good, good developments quite often are quite... It's about serendipity. You know, it's not necessarily fixed the way of going about things. It's the freedom to embrace things as it develops. And I think this was... Roger said, well, certainly you should uh, come and have a look at this granary building, um, which is the 1851. It, it opened one year before uh, uh, King's Cross Station, designed by Lewis Cubitt, not Thomas Cubitt, over the road. And uh, <clears throat> my understanding is that, in fact, the Midland Shed was built in order to allow uh, Queen Victoria to get to Balmoral because King's Cross Station was running late. Yes? <clears throat> anyway, we were, uh, we were then asked, having won this competition, to develop um, the Red Line Square site, which, in fact, uh, had a building that was going to be 12 storeys high. Now, if you think about an art college and the, the synergy between different departments operating on 12 floors, here we're looking at now a site on the other side of the road that, in fact, is a building that is 100 metres wide. It's 200 metres long. It, ha it most probably was the last biggest footprint left in London at that time. And, of course, in many ways it was a no-brainer that Central St. Martin should move there because, one, you get horizontality, so you get wonderful movement and flows between different departments. But equally, you have a building that um, is next door to a phenomenal transport interchange. You've got Eurostar coming in. The students can get to Paris, Brussels quicker than they can to Edinburgh. And so there's a lot of positives. So we really said to the University of the Arts, which is Central St. Martins, that they should really consider moving from Holborn to this site, which then meant that they could let go of and sell uh, I think there are nine of their buildings that, uh, uh, of the 11, they have now uh, bought these students, which are 4,500, nearly 5,000 now, under one roof for the first time in their history. And of course, what that opened up, as we said, is the wonderful dialogue that now happens <coughs> between the design disciplines. And of course, you've got this wonderful potential now for creating a college that um, is breaking down the silo mentality that operates, I think, in many design disciplines, in many disciplines, mm. in fact. Suddenly you have this sort of creative slipstream between disciplines, that creative area that has been uncharted before. You know, that's, um, so we said yes, and um, that was from 2002, and the building opened in 2011. Mm. And you have an interesting story actually about the um, sort of Argent's role in <coughs> the development of the King's Cross site. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I think um, whether you are, many of you are familiar with the sort of battleground that goes on between um, uh, land in London and how you actually develop uh, a site like King's Cross, because uh, it's been the sort of... Um, graveyard of a lot of developers over many years and I did actually and I, I'm, I'm going to I got a crib sheet here I'm afraid because my I didn't want to get the order wrong in terms of uh, how this project unfolded um, in the 1990s I'm sure you remember it was a fairly derelict site um, there were a number of rather wonderful infamous clubs there not sure whether many of you would have been to those I don't know <laughs> <that>. um, <coughs> But what's interesting is that in um, 1992, there was a developer company called Rosehorse Stanhope. They actually achieved a minded to grant 
from Camden, which is a subtle way of saying, well, yeah, if you can put your money where your mouth is and do this, we, might, we will grant this planning application. Well, shortly after that, Rose Hall went bust and the project didn't happen. So we knew then that there was potentially a scheme. Now, importantly, all of these projects need some sort of thing to kickstart it all. And in 1996, Parliament approved plans for the uh, Channel Tunnel rail link. Now, this was key because it meant then there was a decision taken that the train line would take the northern path, Thames Valley, Ebbs Fleet, you know, and uh, would come through. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And it would come through into St. Pancras. And if you remember, Charing Cross was where it came in to initially. So suddenly we have this shift to North London. I think this was a key for the area at all. So in, in, in 1997, the first train, the VIP train, arrived in St. Pancras from Paris. Two hours, three minutes. Now, Argent, we now just go on a little bit to 2000. So we have our <coughs> Eurostar coming in. Argent, then, was selected to develop the master plan for this 67-acre site. And this was 67 acres out of 120, um, partly because of the route that uh, sliced uh, across the land itself. And this is with London Continental and DHL. So remember, we, at this stage... Stanton Williams, we had won this competition in 2002. So Argent are now working on this master plan. Nothing much was going on. Brown, in pump to the government, actually had a row with Livingston at the time and pulled any money to any underground improvement and Thameslink. So still with King's Cross, nobody's quite sure where the money should or shouldn't be going into. But in 2005, if you remember, the big move was the uh, London won the 2012 Olympics and of course suddenly everybody stands to attention and says how are we going to get people moving and this suddenly shifts this triggered then the restart of a number of major transport um, infrastructure projects and of course King's Cross benefits from this and needed support so the year after that Argent gained outline plan permission from Camden uh, and the application had taken four and a half years. It um, <clears throat> 18 months to get through the local authority process at a cost of £15 million. Um, there had been 350 consultation meetings and an estimated 7,500 people had actually attended these meetings. The applications were up to 2,000 new homes, 40% affordable, Three and a half million square feet of office, um, half a million square feet of retail, 20 streets, 
10 public spaces and squares, and right in the middle of this is Central St. Martin's. And that was serendipity, really, because when they got planning, there was no idea that CSM would be moving there at all. There was a, there was a, um, a challenge the next year, which delayed things again, judicious review, because Argent were proposing to demolish one or two of the historic buildings. They've left a lot, but they've done anyway. Um, that that um, they did start work, but in 2008, Lehman Brothers went bust, if you remember that. So the global financial market took a turn. And this really is, I think, is quite remarkable. Within three months of Lehman Brothers going down and no investment in uh, King's Cross at all from Archit's point of view, the University, uh, the University of the Arts, uh, CSM, signed up to move, which is a phenomenal ambition. Here, this is nobody else on the site at all. In the middle of the 67-acre site, Nigel Carrington made the decision to move 4,500, 5,000 students into the middle of a building site, which is quite, uh, I mean, hugely ambitious. And ironically, it is um, the Letherby building that they left at Holborn actually was the first building on the site there because I think that was a no man's land when Central School of Art moved there in the 1890s. So it's quite pioneering. Um, and anyway, Rosemary, that gives you an idea. Think, thinking about how uh, the Central St. Martin's building itself has this huge atrium and how from the building itself it kind of created this community or that's still developing at the moment. Mm -hmm. What kind of thing was happening in the 19th century? It seems like something similar with the people that were on the streets, the writers, the intellectuals, yes. the artists. Were they collaborating in, in a way? And how did this impact their work? Well, I mean, that, that, that's absolutely right. Um, the main um, <coughs> example, I suppose, that predates the Central St. Martins is University College setting up in um, on Gower Street. Now, it might... And then, and actually, an awful lot in the 19th century in terms of literary, cultural, intellectual life follows from the founding of a big university. The first, it was called London University because there wasn't one in 1828. There were only um, Oxford and Cambridge. Um, I always ask this question, I'm sure most of you know, two universities in, in England, how many in Scotland in 1826, should we say? Four, yes. <laughs> so anyway, but only, uh, and in fact, the Scottish <coughs> university system was, was one along with the German system uh, and, and the University of Virginia. These were all models for university college. So it starts up and it's a new building but with um, widening uh, access to people who didn't have to sign the 39 articles of the Church of England in order to be, in order to take a degree. They could be Jews, they could be Catholics, they could be atheists, whatever you like. Um, and also a lot of new subjects were taught. So uh, University College sort of starts up, and then that brings people into the area, obviously. And a lot of writers... Um, they didn't necessarily have anything to do with University College. Browning, as a boy, uh, started off doing um, uh, English because, again, University College was the first to teach modern languages and literatures. And he, uh, he, was, uh, he was only 18 at the time and living in South London, and he only stayed for two weeks at University College. But anyway, uh, so, but, you know, so he was a, a sort of associated. But Dickens, for example, had three different addresses in his lifetime in Bloomsbury. Thackeray lived in Great Coram Street, uh, and he used Great Coram Street uh, and, and Bloomsbury, in fact. The Bloomsbury novel is Vanity Fair, which is set mainly uh, in Russell Square, the largest and grandest of the squares. Um, and and Thackeray, of course, is very interested in social snobbery and hypocrisy, um, looks at the class uh, divisions and at people being snobby, uh, people from the West End being snobby about Bloomsbury, people in Bloomsbury being snobby about the people further east and all that kind of thing. Um, but the footfall in Bloomsbury uh, through the 19th century um, is of people coming to learn, people who are not often not traditional, i.e. those going to university college would be Quakers or they would be, you know, a lot of them Scots. In fact, <laughs> most of the um, medical faculty at university college was um, 
uh, rather difficult professors of medicine uh, escaping from uh, arguments and rows in Edinburgh and Glasgow, and they came to Gower Street and continued their rows in Gower Street. But you know, James Simpson and various other pioneers, um, you know, the first anaesthet- uh, uh, surgery under anaesthetic took place in University College Hospital in 1849, 1848. Anyway, um, so uh, you know, a lot was going on. So it was a place of excitement mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, and I think, I mean, but, but, but rather like your story, uh, it was only by chance that the people who wanted to start up the new University of London with its, with its very broad and open access idea, they, they didn't deliberately fix on uh, Bloomsbury in the 1820s because it was only just being built by Cubitt and others anyway, um, and they were just looking for us a large enough site. And it happened that a site came... Um, free at the top of Gower Street, not on Bedford land, because that would be a no-no, and they grabbed it. And in fact, three, a a, a banker and a couple of um, philanthropists bought the land, again, with foresight, before they had the money or the expertise to actually start the university, and they held on to the land for two years until they could get everybody on board and start the building of um, University College, which was uh, the first great building by William Wilkins, who then went on, of course, to do the National Gallery um, a few years later. So you've got this kind of... um, a combination of a kind of fatalism uh, and determinism and yet also serendipity. Uh, but one thing encourages another. And um, uh, uh, Thackeray and Dickens didn't necessarily live in Bloomsbury because of University College. Dickens was not university educated, as you all know, the Blacking Factory and so on. Uh, and Thackeray had been educated in Cambridge. But, um, but they moved here because there uh, to Bloomsbury because it was relatively cheap but respectable and fairly central and near the British Museum. Um, there was a, and the same reason, um, guessing later in the century, Trollope was actually born in Bloomsbury. Disraeli was born and lived in Bloomsbury. Um, and J.M. Barry, and this will be the last one I'll, I'll tell you about, J.M. Barry um, was a young, uh, impoverished journalist in Scotland. He worked for the Dumfries Courier or some such small um, paper, and he wanted to come to London. Uh, so in 1885, he arrived at King's Cross Station from, um, from Edinburgh and um, hadn't got very much money, didn't have any contacts. He wanted to contact uh, James Greenwood, who was the editor of, I think, the Pall Mall Gazette or some paper that he thought he might be able He published a little bit in and hoped he might get a, a permanent job. So he turns up, he tells you this in his, um, in his autobiography called The Greenwood Hat, um, Barry's a very strange figure. But anyway, it's a very strange autobiography, but it tells you in wonderful detail how he turned up um, at King's Cross with very little money, as thin as a pencil and not much taller. Uh, He was actually under five foot and always going on regretfully and ironically about his diminutive size. Um, What was he going to do? Well, he had to find cheap lodgings nearby. Uh, And the only thing he knew about, two things were the British Museum, which he wanted to be near, to be able to go and read in the reading room. Uh, And the other thing was his hero, as he says in his memoir, was um, Peter Roger of Roger's Thesaurus. Now, he had died by 1885, um, but Barry knew that he had lived in Bloomsbury. Roger, in fact, had been a rather pioneering doctor in the 1820s, living in Bernard Street, um, just where Russell Square tube is. Uh, but Roger had then gone on to write the thesaurus, and Barry had brought his thesaurus with him to London. And because of because of Roger and because of the British Museum, he pitched up in a, a, a room uh, in Grenville Street, just to the south of Brunswick Square. And when he wrote Peter Pan, the play, in 1904, not a lot of people know this. They tend to think of it as t- taking place in Kensington, but by which because that's where Barry lived by that time. But actually, he says, he says in his, his stage directions, the Darling family lived in a depressed street in Bloomsbury. And he actually says, why? Because that was, again, you see, you're getting more towards the eastern, northeastern part of Bloomsbury, which is not quite as plush as the western part. Uh, and he actually says, um, the reason why I'm setting the, I'm, I'm, I'm having the Darwins, D- Darlings live in Bloomsbury is because of Roger. Um, so, there's a, you know, the, the Barry was very much uh, the kind of figure who pitched up deliberately in Bloomsbury. Others pitched up by chance. 
So do you think a similar thing happened in the early 20th century when the Bloomsbury set and kind of embarked on the area? Well, yes, uh, you, Virginia Woolf, because everybody knows about the, the Bloomsbury group or the Bloomsbury set. And actually, one of, the, one of the, the, the reasons, I had many reasons for wanting to write my book on Victorian Bloomsbury, mainly because I'm an expert on Victorian London and literature, but also I was rather cross at the idea that everybody thinks of Bloomsbury as somehow starting up as an interesting cultural venue because Virginia Woolf or Virginia Stephen, as she then was, um, moved in with her sister and two brothers, Vanessa, Vanessa Bell later, and two brothers, to Gordon Square in 1904 after the death of their father, Leslie Stephen. Now, they did move into Bloomsbury, but they didn't create, they moved into an area which they embraced as being free, literary, artistic, um, intellectual. Kensington they hated, mainly because of the depression of their father, and they found the house in Kensington depressing. And also, it was, a, it was freedom. They were four young adults, um, let free, really, and they chose Bloomsbury, again, because of the British Museum. Vanessa Stephen studied briefly in the Slade School in UCL. And so they, but they came and they recognised that this was an, a, a very pleasant area, quite cheap, because they weren't well off, they could afford it, it was affordable, it was pleasant, it, it, it was cultural, there was the British Museum, there was UCL, and so on, all round about. So by 1904, um, Bloomsbury was the right place for them to move to. They didn't create it. Simon, can you tell us a bit about the design or architecture of the St Pancras Station? Hmm. Yes, um, well, the, 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 there's a sort of, um, what's the word, antithesis or duality or something between King's Cross and St Pancras, which is quite instructive and people have, you know, identified quite early on. King's Cross, uh, the frontage you see to the street is basically the, the train shed, as it's called, the, in other words, the big enclosure with the platforms and the trains inside, expressed uh, very uh, plainly and in forthright way, big arches, uh, a sort of relatively minimal brick um, frame or what's the word structure to enclose those two twin arches. Um, so it's it's a legible building, you know, it, it, it tells of its purpose. And there are other, other parts to it, booking halls and all the rest, but they're sort of squashed down below or tucked around the side. And there's a railway hotel which is built as a separate building, a Great Northern Hotel, sort of relatively recently reopened um, in the sort of southwest corner. Um, so that's two buildings, really. It's the hotel and the station together. Uh, when it came to build St Pancras, uh, the, there's a sense in which the idea of what a station should be has moved on, and uh, part of that is wanting to integrate the hotel with the actual operative part of the railway station. And uh, there's a parallels, or the prototypes for that, already at Paddington, uh, where there's a big hotel across the front, though perhaps not always terribly aware of it if you just come up onto the, you know, out of the tube and onto the, onto the train. Um, Charing Cross, where you, you're perhaps more aware of it because there, there is the great Charing Cross Hotel sitting back from the Strand and then the train behind. Um, so uh, it follows that model and uh, that means that although there is a very grand and spectacular and indeed sort of record-breaking train shed there raised up in a single arch for, um, done, done in one volume rather than two, the biggest the world had yet seen, um, you don't get the benefit of that or you don't get the expression of that because at the front is the hotel and it happens that the hotel is the most spectacular of all railway hotels. It is a, a, a very grand building indeed uh, designed by uh, Sir George Gilbert Scott, so the, the leading architect of the day and in a style, in a neo-Gothic style which um, the progressive-minded or the, uh, the functionalist uh, approach finds grating or unsuitable or um, you know, misleading, let's say. Um, I, I've got no particular quarrel with this. I mean, it's it's uh, it's part of the very rich and um, uh, kind of plural world of Victorian uh, architecture in which uh, contending styles and contending ideas of how architecture should express itself um, are, are all in play. Um, perhaps it's, one should say that there were people at the time who felt that this was a bit odd, uh, that you should have something looking a bit like a, a kind of fantasy sort of hyper-Bruges or uh, what's a sort of no countries or Italian Gothic all mixed together and behind it is the most modern thing of all the most up-to-date railway terminus in London uh, but it's a marvellous contradiction it's a sort of dialogue it's a, it's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of creative tension between them um, What happened uh, in the 20th century because it sort of fell into disrepair and mm. it became offices and yeah. disused as a hotel 
it was not a very yeah. nice yeah. area to be in. And the, the um, in a way, that sort of happenstance, uh, because of the way the railways, uh, I mean, the, the Victorian Edwardian railways, there are multiple competing companies, a, a dozen or so of the big ones and lots of much smaller ones. Uh, after the First World War, they're grouped by government decree into four. Uh, so the London Midland and Scottish Railway, which is the company that ends up with both uh, the old Midland line to St Pancras and the old London or Northwestern line to Euston, suddenly it's got two flagship hotels. And generally you don't want two flagships, you know. So they, they have to decide which one to foster and invest in, and they go for Euston. It's all lost now. It was all demolished in the 60s. Uh, but Euston <coughs> is the station that has the boat trains to Ireland. You know, it has, a, has an existing traffic. It's an older hotel than the Midland Grand Hotel. Um, but they don't pull it down. They, 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 they'd probably like to pull it down. There was talk of, talk of redeveloping it. Uh, but they just downgrade it. They use it as offices. So that happens in the mid-30s. They have a choice. It, 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 it's, it's losing its position as a great hotel. There are interesting accounts um, of uh, it in its, in its last decline. In fact, Paul Nash, who tried to, tried to arrange some coffee there so he could listen to a radio play, one of the world's first radio plays, because uh, he didn't have a wireless set. Um, he, he arranged, a friend of his had written a wireless play, very exciting, very modern. This is sort of 1928, 9.30. And they arranged to go and have coffee, because uh, he lives just across the way. If you go to the current Tate exhibition, you can see paintings he did off St Pancras from the flat he had just on the south side of the road. And, um, and everything's terrible. You know, the coffee takes ages to arrive, and it tastes foul when it arrives. And the staff are sarcastic and rude, and the radio won't work and everything. But you have the sense there of a place really on the skids. And shortly after that, they, they say, no, this is it. We're, we're closing it now. And uh, if you want to stay with us, with the hotel, then there's our flagship at Houston. And it just sits there uh, rather wonderfully. And perhaps there are people here who went on tours uh, when you could still do it, of the um, disused uh, building waiting for conversion transformation back into a hotel that was marvellous. So when it was cleaned up and redeveloped quite recently back into a hotel, it sort of was the start of everything that was happening over in the King's Cross site in the redevelopment with CSM and also other buildings which are cropping up at the moment. I wonder, Paul, what you think about the recent buildings that are appearing on that site? <coughs> Um, and, and also what's well, coming, because I think yeah. isn't Thomas Heatherwick doing something... Well, I think it's on? quite uh, remarkable, I'm just talking about, we were talking about it earlier, about this sort of knowledge quarter now that's developing at King's Cross. Uh, and this was a, a conversation, actually it was the chief executive of the British Library talking about this, I think, who chairs this. And um, he was saying the Crick has moved north... Uh, we have the Crick Institute, uh, and then we've got British Library, Central St. Martins. I mean, we, we obviously we have this building here. So there's this sense of, he talks about a centre of gravity of knowledge moving uh, north of the Euston Road, which I think is, is interesting. I mean, Central uh, St. Central Martins, clearly um, a number of different uh, bodies have wanted to move close to Central St. Martins now. Um, the Google, um, I know uh, the a tender has gone out for the contractors who are going to build the new Google headquarter building at King Cross, which is uh, to the south of the Regents Canal. We have uh, the Aga Khan, I'm whether you're aware of this, that there's a new cultural centre coming to um, King's Cross. Uh, the Aga Khan's university is being built at the moment to the north of uh, Central St. Martins. We built student accommodations for those students on the north of the site itself. So, I mean, there's a, there's a momentum gathering uh, quite strongly mm. in terms of... Uh, I mean, obviously, the big question is, is the um, integration with Somerstown uh, to the west. And I mean, that's a debate to be had when, when the development is finished. I think we're halfway through. I think half of the um, site has been built on at the moment. Obviously, there's a lot of office. Um, there is some retail. The question will always be with any redevelopment is how much of the grain of the industrial landscape of the railway architecture is going to be left. Clearly, we have the granary building, the Midland Shed. The gasometers are being put back again, but they're still being inhabited by flats as well. I think, that, <clears throat> for me, the, the jury, I mean, it's a remarkable venture what Argent have done. One hopes that there will be a grain still left 
So the memory of uh, this king, this landscape is still very much there. I think memory is important, and the historic buildings mm. have to be kept, have to be cherished, um, and it's the integration of the two at the moment. But it's all very positive, I think. Do you think it's possible to avoid what Simon was talking about, the sort of obsolescence of buildings and things falling into disrepair? Do you think in the future this area that's just been redeveloped might <coughs> have the same fate? Well, it obviously brings up the whole issue about private uh, uh, public ownership. Um, we're in a time when um, boroughs have, don't have any... Um, any money, frankly, all of their budgets have been cut. Whether we like it or not, uh, most development in London has been private money. It is the developers that are developing. Um, all I would say to that is clearly there are what are called 106 agreements, and out of the one, you, you're familiar with the uh, this uh, part of planning. A 106 agreement means that a developer can get planning, but providing certain other things are done, which would be uh, uh, the developer has to produce affordable housing or ro different roads, etc., etc. So the planners have some sort of say. But, of course, the, the developer is in the ascendancy at the moment because they're the ones that are building. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our 2016 London Lit Weekend mini-series. Until the normal weekly podcast resumes on January 5th, you can catch up, of course, on previous episodes and visit our website, the-tls.co.uk. There's plenty there to keep you busy. And you can do all the usual too, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and review us on iTunes. See you in 2017. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.